0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. I'm your host, Paul Metza. Our guest tonight, Andrea Swenson, is an author, a radio host, and music journalist. She hosts the local show at Minnesota's Public Radio's 89.3, The Current. Before joining NPR, she was the music editor at City Pages. She has written a wonderful new book called Got to Be Something Here, The Rise of the Minneapolis Sound. We're really delighted to have her here for the whole show tonight. Welcome, Andrea.
1: Thanks for having me. Yes.
0: I uh, am really enjoying your book. Oh,
1: good. I'm glad to hear it.
0: When did you, you know, you've been writing about music for a long time and mm-hmm. pr- listening to music, I'm sure, longer. You're a native of Moose Lake, Minnesota. Yes. Which I pass every time I'm going up to the Iron Range for the holidays. Um When did you tell yourself, I think there's an idea for a book here?
1: I think the idea, the seed was planted in 2012. Um, you probably recall the Secret Stash Twin right. Cities Funk and Soul compilation yeah. coming out. And that was just a revelation, I think, for a lot of people that there was so much music and so much history in this scene that wasn't documented. And, and, that, and that those tapes still existed. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that the musicians are still around right. playing and they are talking to each other and all these memories are just kind of floating in the air. And so I went to a rehearsal for the big launch party for that compilation, and I met a lot of the musicians for the first time, like Willie Walker. Right,
0: my and, good buddy.
1: Yes, and the Valdons. And I remember um,
0: you called me. Now, Willie and I have been playing together. We, Willie Walker, as he used to be known, is now known again four geez, i think we're going on seven years and i remember you called me about that time said you got willie's number and you tell me what you were working on and so i'm glad i was able to hook you up.
1: thank you i appreciate that he was amazing the first chapter actually starts with him right he has so many really vivid memories of those very early days you know he started playing in the twin cities in 1960 right um singing with fellow teenagers in the north minneapolis neighborhood so there were all these stories just kind of percolating, and um, I just knew that someone needed to turn on a tape recorder right. and write these down. And I didn't know that that would be me for maybe mm-hmm. two years after that. But in 2014, I started working on it in earnest, and I'm really glad that I did.
0: Well, that's a great, you know, you've got a great radar as a journalist to feel that. Uh, it's been so interesting. In the You know, we recently had uh, Terry Katzman on. Uh, who, to, an old friend of mine, who talked about the uh, Savage Young Doo,
2: mm. the
0: Husker Dude compilation, and then you, uh, before that, Chris Reimenschneider. and uh, you know, and you look at the books that have been written just in the last handful of years right. about uh, the Twin Cities music scene, and what a treasure trove of experiences that people have been able to capture right. and share.
1: Right, yeah, and I think all credit goes to the two kind of regional publishers that we have in town, the University of Minnesota Press, where I published my book, and the Minnesota Historical Society Absolutely. Press. They really turned an interest uh, area, you know, they found that this is like a very fertile ground for right. storytelling, right. and I'm just really grateful that they're supporting people doing that.
0: And, and to, that their readers are kind of in that uh, demographic that, Knows about the history as well and right. lives some of the history. Right, but yes, I think that's a good point. Uh, my book, Blue Guitar Highway, was put out by the University of Minnesota Press in 2011, and your book got to be some, something. Here was when was it actually? Uh, the release date?
1: Uh, October 10th of this year. Oh, yeah, it's very new. So you've been busy. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, we had a big launch party at the Fitzgerald Theater. Right. Uh, Willie thinking, played.
0: Mm-hmm. And the Valdons. And the
1: Valdons and Wanda Davis and Andre Simone. And wow. it was just incredible. I don't think I've ever had an experience like that before. It was so profound to see everyone coming together, not just from, you know, one particular scene, but across generations right. and realizing that this story, you know, started in the 60s, but is still going on today. Right. And uh, we had Nookie Jones as the house band and Paviel singing, who's uh, just contemporary, uh, amazing, amazing singer. And to see these basically three generations coming together and saying, yeah, Fantastic. this is a really incredible community that we built. It was really profound. Were
0: you able to audio and videotape that oh, yeah. show? Because, boy, do I see a, a KTCA channel, too documentary right that around would the corner be,
1: that would be really cool yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll just walk down the hall right yeah
0: <laughs> or across the street andrea swenson you grew up in moose lake minnesota um i've been through that time my mother actually used to work when she started as a nurse at the uh, at the hospital there oh sure um so we were very familiar with moose lake but when did you really start to listen to music and oh gosh who 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 what turned you on to your love of music? It um, continues to this day, my dad.
1: My parents. Okay. I mean, it was very young age. It was a very musical house. My mom played piano. My dad played guitar. Um, they had amazing record collections. And that was kind of what we did as a family was, you know, listen to music together, dance together. Oh, how
2: much fun. Um,
1: it was just, yeah, very, I'm, I'm an only child, so it was just the three of us, you know, and um, that just started so early. I remember my dad um, even teaching me lessons through music. Like if I threw a, a fit, he would <laughs> sit down and play me the Rolling Stones. You can't always get what you want. Oh,
0: nice. Good
1: work, <laughs> um, Dad. So it was just kind of woven into my life right. um, very early on. And then I, I took an interest in music from an early age. I started playing piano and flute and was in the band at Moose Lake. And then when we moved down to the Twin Cities uh, when I was about 12, then I, all of a sudden I had access to this right. whole big world. Right. I had MTV for the first time, right, and I could go to right. the record stores sure. in Minneapolis, go to the Electric Fetus and things like that. So it's just kind of been part of my DNA, basically.
0: <laughs> well, I was just, you know, the, the book really kind of wraps up uh, with Prince and how he came of age in that time. And, you know, when you mentioned the Electric Fetus, in one of the greatest independent record stores yeah. anywhere, yeah. right? Um and one of the, the few places that independent musicians like myself can consign their records. Right. You know, so that, that that's a beautiful outlet as well mm. that they provide to the community. But I, th- I just hearken back to that beautiful picture of Prince going through, uh, you know, the record collection and the magazines just a few weeks before he died right. at the electric fetus.
1: Right. I actually was in there just uh, last week, and the manager, Bob, told me that fans are coming in from all over the world and standing where he stood in that wow. picture
0: to, get, to picture. get their
1: own picture taken so they know that they stood right where Prince was.
0: Cool. And then there's, <laughs> in the background, up on the wall, is the poster of Tom Waits. Yeah. 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 I talked to the uh, longtime clerk... That sold him his batch of records, and he told me he bought four or five records uh, that day. I believe Joni Mitchell, mm. uh, Swan Silvertones, and I believe Sly and the Family Stone, oh Steely Dan, wow, and something else, yeah. interesting. So, and the other thing—well, there's a lot of things I, lo- I love about your book, Andrea. Got to be something here, but the the pictures are phenomenal. Oh yeah. Yeah. Tell us, how many how many photos do you think are in the book?
1: Um, I believe there's over 80. Wow. Yeah, and that was, we were really intentional about how the pictures were used and what pictures were chosen. Um, I really didn't want it to feel like you were only going to look at the pictures and skip over the stories. Right. Um, so we made them black and white and kind of in the text, and I kind of pictured it like a textbook. <laughs> yeah. They're just kind of helping to illustrate the stories. But then yeah. we found them from so many different sources. Um, I did a lot of research at the Historical Society, at the uh, downtown Minneapolis Central Library. They have a special talk collection. Talk about,
0: yes, talk about that, because yeah. I was uh, on the fourth floor, correct? Yep. And I was there... I forget exactly what I was looking for, but that's where I saw they had the picture that you have in there of the Prince Rogers Nelson trio. Yes, yes. Um, which is a funny picture because there's actually it's actually a quartet. Right. But uh, but what was interesting about that that I, you know, and I actually saw at least one of the prints of that uh, at the Henneman County Library, and I'm a big library guy. In fact, go down. <laughs> That library, yeah, it's, it's beautiful, it's, and the people that work there are phenomenal. Yes, plus Ernie Banson, you know, he retired from there. David Stenshaw, the musician for Boyle the Land, nice. he works there. So, uh, but that fourth floor is amazing. So tell us, yes. Yeah, so some yeah. of the other places you got the photos from.
1: Um, a lot of them, honestly, came from people's personal collections. Mm. Um, there's a band called the Family that I go pretty in depth in, in one of the chapters. They were um, basically the big brothers of Prince and Andre uh, mm-hmm. Simone and Morris Day in North Minneapolis.
0: Well, so, in that picture that I was just talking about, on mm-hmm. uh, the Prince Rogers Nelson trio, ha- Andre Simone's dad is playing bass. Yeah. So tell yeah, us about yeah. that when when uh, that story. The, Yeah, that was such
1: a cool moment. So I interviewed Andre a couple times, actually, for this book, um, and he was remembering back to this very specific moment where he met Prince on the first day of seventh grade at Lincoln Junior High in in near North Minneapolis, and they immediately had this connection of, oh, we both are music people, Mm -hmm. we need to jam. So Prince invited Andre to his dad's apartment where there were all kinds of instruments for them to play with, and Andre was looking at the piano, and there's this little photograph of Prince's dad and his band and he said gosh that, that guy looks like my dad and Prince's dad came home after uh, work that day and looked at Andre and looked at the picture and looked at Andre again and was like I know you wow, how so, phenomenal there were so many stories like that that neighborhood was so tight knit and that community was so small that mm-hmm. it was basically like a big family that everyone kind of knew each other and looked out for each other so I just I love that story
0: you know uh, Playing playing with uh, Willie Walker is an honor, but hanging out with them is so much fun. Yeah. So we we've really got to know each other, driving the gigs together, hanging out on the gay on the brakes. And so I've heard stories about the Cozy Bar and uh uh and all the in the King Solomon mines. Mm-hmm. And what's the one I can't pronounce Nick, Nick the one that's, the Ameri- that's America spelled backwards.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> right. So 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 I've heard about these places uh through Willie, right. and then actually see the pictures was really great.
1: Right, yeah, and those some of those came from the Historical Society has a huge archive of photos by Charles Chambliss, and that was a treasure trove. Um, they actually just put out another book from the Historical Society Press just of his pictures. Um, he did not just music, but kind of daily life in North Minneapolis, wow. and really documented the 1970s African American community.
0: Thanks for listening to the Wall and Power Radio Hour. We are going to have Author and radio host and writer, Andrea Swenson, on for the whole show tonight talking about her great new book, Got to Be Something Here, The Rise of the Minneapolis Sound. Stay tuned.
3: This is Dan Brooks, Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with RBC Wealth Management. For the past 19 years, I've been managing wealth for individuals, institutions, and corporate retirement plan sponsors. Throughout my career, I've seen common traits in successful investors. They include the courage to be diversified, the willingness to work with a professional, the discipline to follow a plan, and patience. I welcome the opportunity to help contribute to your financial success. Call me at 612-371-2396.
4: Serving family favorites in Minneapolis since 1964, Milda's Cafe is a great spot for breakfast or lunch. Wake up with their delicious Eggs Benedict or biscuits and gravy and savor their many great lunch options. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, Milda serves authentic Finnish pasties. Open weekdays 6 to 3 and now on weekends 8 to 2 on Glenwood Avenue, 4 blocks east of Penn.
2: Hi, friends. I've been talking to you about Minnesota's first green cemetery, Prairie Oaks Memorial Eco Gardens. It's an entirely new way of looking at our last earthly step. Burials are designed to have as little impact on the environment as possible. For many of us, a continuation of the commitment we made during our lifetimes. Let me suggest you go to the website, mngreengraves.com. Explore what it is. Prairie Oaks Memorial Eco Gardens. It's a lovely place, a peaceful place. Minnesota's first green cemetery.
0: Welcome back to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. I'm your host, Paul Metza. I hope you've been enjoying this show. We've got Miss Andrea Swenson on for the whole night tonight, talking about not only her love of music and her history uh, of how she came to love music, but her new book, Got to Be Something Here, uh, about the history of the Minneapolis Sound. Andrea, what? Uh, where did the title come from?
1: A song. Is it? Yes. So... There's so many great songs that I discovered through the research process. Uh, one of them, it's billed as the Lewis Connection, but the people that actually recorded on it were this band, the Family, that mm-hmm. got started in North Minneapolis in the early '70s at the Way Community Center. Right. And they, Spike Moss, right? Yes. Spike Moss was their manager. <laughs> right. I saw it, you
0: know, because anybody who's been involved with Minneapolis politics <clears throat> uh, for the last 35, 40 years. You bumped into Spike at some point. Yeah. But it was so great to see that picture of a young Spike. Yes. Yeah. yeah. handsome guy.
1: Yeah, he was very involved in The Way. The Way was built uh, basically in the immediate aftermath of the first unrest that happened in North Minneapolis in 1966. Right. And by the early 70s, it was the place to hang out for mm-hmm. all of these young kids coming up in the neighborhood. So there was a music room where you could go and jam and play all these different instruments and in this band formed called The Family. And their history is just fascinating because they ended up mentoring this whole generation of young kids that Mm. we associate now with the Minneapolis Sound, like Prince and Morris and Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Uh, The family was led by Sonny Thompson, who went on to play in the NPG with Prince and Sonny T. And uh, a lot of other really talented musicians in this group. So they wrote and recorded this song called Got to Be Something Here. And the lyrics and the sound of it and then this backstory they all just really spoke to me. They actually hired Prince to play guitar on the recording, so very quietly you can hear him a little bit in the background. Right,
0: and so how old would have Prince been? Fifteen at the time? He
1: would have been uh, seventeen, I think. He right. was about to go to New York and try to shop his demos around right. to Warner Brothers, and he actually used the money from that recording session really? to buy the plane ticket. How yeah. cool! <laughs> so just a fascinating story, and then, you know, the... The idea of there's got to be something here for us, which is what the lyric is, it really speaks to, I think, the theme of the book, which is that this African-American music community was basically being ignored Mm -hmm. by everyone outside of their immediate neighborhood, and they still managed to persevere and to book gigs and make records and form this scene That eventually became world famous Um, but they had to overcome a lot to do that
0: well you in in the beginning of the book you talked about the Rondo neighborhood Mm -hmm. uh, which would be kind of between let's say Dale and Lexington Mm -hmm. on either side of 94 uh, very thriving black neighborhood and so you get into a a lot of the 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 politics and the segregation back there but there's a great quote um, in there Believe it is every freeway is a political act.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah, that really spoke to me after researching. um, You know, you realize that we kind of take these roads for granted. We use them to just whip back and forth between Mm -hmm. the two cities. But to plan out where those roads go and why, um, it's basically following a path of least resistance. And this is true of pretty much every major metropolitan area that – It's the poor areas, it's the areas where minorities live that ended up getting bulldozed to make way for these roads. And that was certainly true of Rondell. The people that lived there didn't even know that these discussions were happening about Building 94. There were two proposed routes, one which would have run along, um, they called it the St. Anthony Route, um, which goes basically behind, uh, I think it's called Territorial Road, Mm -hmm. along um, where the the train uh, tracks run. And that was ignored as a, a potential because it was so much cheaper and faster to just go right through the heart of this neighborhood. Sure, and
0: they sure as hell weren't, weren't going to build the highway down Summit or Grand. And, well, yeah.
1: <laughs> <you know. laughs> but the culture that existed there and the neighborhood and the people, it was such a small area, and it was where so many of the African Americans who moved here in the 40s and 50s ended up going to live, and to just wipe out that neighborhood and take out the core. I think 80% of the residents had to be displaced. That just absolutely obliterated the sense of culture, this kind of core. Yep, the sense of community. It took out music venues. Um, It just made it really difficult to still feel that kind of vibrant sense of, like, we're together doing something right now.
2: Right.
1: Um, So it it just had a massive impact on music and um, in addition to just daily life. So I really wanted to get into that because I, I think it's just a, yet another example of, you know, all these barriers that were put up in front of people that were just trying to live and trying to make art. And um, I, I just feel like people my age need to know about this.
0: You know, it's, it's interesting when you think about the Rondo neighborhood that the one uh, real solid rock, in that neighborhood that, ex- that didn't exist at the time, but now is the Penumbra Theater.
1: Mm, yes.
0: And so, which I I was uh, privileged to not know, but watch a little bit of August Wilson in oh, action. My. We used to play at uh, the 400 Bar, my band Catching the Stars, in the early 80s. And there was this um, man, he would smoke Camel Straights. He'd have uh, sweaters, occasionally jack- tweed jackets time was always undone and he was always writing in a little notebook mm. of course we were right down the street um, from jack ruler's theater uh mixed blood and so i came to find out uh several years later that that was August Wilson. Wow. And he loved to write in in smoky, busy, loud bars. Mm-hmm. And but and so I saw almost every time Lou Bellamy and company would debut an August Wilson show, I'd go to the Penumbra, and I knew I was just sitting uh, in the midst of magic in history.
2: Yeah.
0: And so, and of course, you know, so many of August's plays are about his growing up in, in Cleveland. Uh, and so... There was that at least psychic connection between Rondo and what I used to witness at the Penumbra. And their Black Nativity uh, is a wonderful performance that everyone should go see see for the holidays. And also, we had Gary Hines on last week. We're going to air that show uh, next week. Um, But we have the uh, Night Before Christmas with the uh, Sounds of Blackness, December 23rd at Fitzgerald. Legendary. Yeah. (laughs) So... Tell us a little bit about, we're going to jump around, that's what we do here on Law and Power TV. So where have you been going uh, for your readings, and what sort of response have you been getting?
1: Well, the biggest launch was at the Fitzgerald Theater. Like I mentioned, we had live performances, but I also told some of the stories from the book. I uh, talked about Rondo, I talked about North Minneapolis and the uh, construction of the way, and it was interesting to take that kind of presentation to a place like the Fitzgerald Theater, mm-hmm. which is you know most known for Prairie Home Companion, right. and, and to really try to tell this other kind of story about Minnesota music history. And at times, it was not pretty. You know, right, it's exactly. getting into some pretty hard truths. Um, and that was just such a profound experience for me to be able to tell these stories, but then to have the evening be so full of joy and such a celebration of these artists. Um, so that is just going to stand out for me forever as a, a as a highlight. But I've also done things at the Electric Fetus and the Bryant Lake Bowl. Um, I'm going to be popping into many of the bookstores here in town, like Moon Palace. Um, I did something at Majors and Quinn, of oh, course. Oh, my favorite
0: uh, bookstore in <laughs> the yes, world, Majors and Quinn.
1: Me too. Um, and the Harmar Barnes & Noble. Yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs>
2: yes.
0: Harmar Superstar. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I just I bumped into Harmar. I just saw one of his... First time I'd ever seen him, and we hang out at a place occasionally called a, a Grumpy's Bar in Northeast. And uh, I was telling Harmar, I said, that was, my, I, that, that was like the last place you'd go and find Radio Shack. Ah,
1: uh, yeah. The
0: and they had a beautiful theater there, too. I don't yeah. even know. I haven't been there in a while. We've got Andrea Swenson <laughs> on. She uh, has her own show called The Local Show on 89.3 The Current. NPR, what uh, day of the week and what time is it? Sunday
1: nights at 6 o'clock.
0: The Wall of Power Radio Hour will be back after these messages. Where there is power, there is resistance. Where there is love, there is life. Resist with love this holiday season with products from Northern Sun. Since 1979, Northern Sun has been spreading the love and supplying the resistance with shirts, stickers, signs, and buttons. Embrace the future and confront the crazies in Washington, too. Find the love and the resistance at Northern Sun in Minneapolis on East Lake Street or online at northernsun.com. You're listening to AM950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the most informative source for progressive politics and news in the Twin Cities. Get involved online at am950radio.com where you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. Check out the local businesses that help make this content available and stay up to date on the latest news and upcoming events. You can always reach us by email at comment at am950radio.com. That's comment at am950radio.com. Thanks for listening.
3: Fireplaces. This is an important part of our mission at Woodland Stoves and Fireplaces. We know that the fireplace has to work. Work with your life, work with your living space, and also be environmentally smart. Come see us. Learn to burn wise. We have over 35 working units on display at the corner of Riverside and East Franklin Avenue in Minneapolis. Visit our store in person or online at woodlandstoves.com.
4: Woodland Stoves and Fireplaces, out of the ordinary products and services since 1977. Enjoy a delicious home-cooked breakfast or lunch away from the kitchen at Milda's Cafe. Now open seven days a week, Milda's Cafe has been cooking up family favorites since 1964. Grab a coffee and sit down for a delicious Philly scramble, house rolls, or Denver omelet. Stop in for lunch where you'll find authentic Finnish pasties every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Open weekdays six to three, weekends eight to two. Milda's Cafe on Glenwood Avenue, four blocks east of Penn.
3: Seasteads, the family-owned flooring business that's been serving the Twin Cities for 100 years, has plenty of carpet and sheet vinyl stock to choose from and can help you with your wood and laminate needs too. Seasteads will come to your home, provide a free estimate, and professionally install their quality, brand-name flooring products. For your next flooring project, call the trusted, experienced experts at Seasteads 651-224-5474, located across from the New Saints Stadium and online at SeasteadsCarpet.com. It's the best time of the year. Toyota-thon is on. Rudy Luther Toyota is celebrating their 40th anniversary with great deals all month long on all new Toyotas. With huge incentives from Toyota, now is the time to buy. Great rebates on RAV4s. Great rebates on Camrys. And remember, you get my favorite perk from Rudy Luther, the Luther Advantage Card, which gets you $0.10 off per gallon at Holiday Station stores for three years with every vehicle purchase. Toyota-thon is on. Stop in today on the southeast corner of 394 and 169 in Golden Valley.
0: Welcome back to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Mitza. Our conversation continues with author Andrea Swenson and her great new book, Got to Be Something Here. I loved reading about this, the young Jewish guy yes. with the uh, recording studio in his basement of his parents' house. Yes. Tell us about this guy and tell us how he got into recording because the the whole thing is, is really kind of a an interesting story about emerging technology.
1: Oh, absolutely. So in the 1950s, North Minneapolis was predominantly a Jewish neighborhood, and it was also where um, an increasing number of African Americans were migrating to. So there were these two kind of cultures coming together. And David Hursk was an enterprising young man from uh, North High School, and he actually... Mm-hmm. He was going to uh, his Hebrew lessons um, to prepare for his bar mitzvah when he was twelve or thirteen, and he noticed that his teacher, in order to um, teach him the proper dialect, was recording his voice onto a record, which is crazy to me. I really want—I right. really want one of these. Right, no doubt. Uh, but at the time, you could buy blank records and then a, a record player that had a little uh, knife on it that would cut. Wow. And actually record raw audio onto a forty-five for you. So a little light went off, and he said, "Okay, I need to learn how to use that. I need." He asked for that for his bar mitzvah right, present, right. and he started he was recording. Kind, sounds
0: like the kind of kid that wasn't uh, didn't subscribe to Mad magazine and read comic books, but like he would. Go to the library and read Popular Mechanics. Right. You know, 12 years old with big glasses, right? <laughs> yep,
1: exactly.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so he started buying these blank 45s, and he realized that it was cheaper to record a song off the radio onto a blank 45 than to buy the new one. And he started calling in to uh, WDGY and requesting songs. And then at one point, I think the announcer even said... This is for young David. Are you ready? And then (laughs) did a little pause so he could put his little needle down. And then he would cut these 45s. And then he started selling them. Wow. Because, you know, he... That's the good part of Minneapolis,
0: right? Not the segregated part, but the cool side.
1: Yeah. So this all snowballed until he figured out uh, around the age of 15 or 16 that he could actually record bands and make original 45s for these bands. So what
0: year was this, Andrea?
1: This was... He started recording in, I think, 1956. Wow. And uh, they ended up being the first recordings of any rock and roll music, any R&B music. Uh, he actually cut the first R&B record to wow. ever come out of the state of Minnesota in 1958. Uh, the band is called. Incredible. I know. It's crazy. The band was called the Big M's. And there were a couple bands of similar kind of music. It was basically doo at this point, mm-hmm. um, kind of pre-R&B sure. even. Uh, there was a band called the Velquins, and there was a band called the Wisdoms, and I was able to interview David. Uh, unfortunately, he just passed away last year, but oh. I interviewed him right before he passed away, and he was telling me these amazing stories. And
0: of course, you, you have all your interviews on tape, yes. right? Oh, yes. Okay, so yeah. they are going to find a happy home yes.
1: soon. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and I made sure to record you know, with a really good microphone to good. Get, get this history down. Um, but yeah, he was telling me that he was so impressed by these young bands that he wished that he had connections to Motown or to somebody at a big record label that could have distributed them outside of the state. Instead, you know, they would cut 500 copies. Some of those ended up just being lost. Um, The acetates of all these recordings ended up getting pitched because he left them in his parents' basement and when he got married they (laughs) threw away all of his stuff. Um, So, unfortunately it's just limited to the few b or these r and b there's just a few copies of them floating out, and I was able to find one Wow um, so that was a really Where'd big win on eBay Wow cool. <laughs> yeah, but I guess there is another copy in the metro area too so um, it's just it's fascinating to me how you know that was such an active scene, and the only thing that we know about it is what was captured
0: well, what was interesting andrew when when I was reading the this story about David. Enterprising young man. You know, you think about late fifties, early (laughs) sixties whenever it was recorded. It wasn't cheap. No. Tell us about that, because uh, you had to come up with some scratch to get this stuff recorded. Yeah,
1: he charged $1,000 for the recording time and for the records. And I asked him, you know, how did a teenager in 1958 come up with that kind of money? And i would be
0: like $50,000 today.
2: <laughs>
1: Except their parents paid. Yeah, right,
2: right.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's like, whatever, you know. Wow. But it was worth it. To them, you know, to to be able, that was such a legitimizing step to be able to take as a young performer. Like, I have a record. That's so So cool.
0: So, back then, were they able to get airplay anywhere with those records?
1: No. No, not in the late 50s. Um, There was some interest in uh, TV, interestingly enough. There was a show on KSTP called, I think it was called Take Five. And they had local bands come on and teenagers would come on the set and dance. Um, but it really uh, was a kind of upsetting story to uh, hear recounted because when these young doo bands came on, the producers didn't want them dancing with any of the young white women. Right. And they actually filmed them from the waist down, so you could only see them playing their guitars and seeing people's feet shuffling around, but they didn't yeah, want... The complete to, opposite
0: of Elvis. Right,
1: exactly, exactly. But they didn't want to show the black performers oh. on TV, so really upsetting. Yeah. But um, in the 60s, there was more interest in radio, in the community radio. um, There was a station called KUXL that was active in North Minneapolis.
0: And that was just for the neighborhood?
1: It was, yeah. The studio was just over the border into Golden Valley, and then I think it was like a half-mile or a mile radius. Which is,
0: as John Steinbeck said in Travels with Charlie, when he passed through, is neither golden nor valley.
1: (laughs) That's true. (laughs) It's in his book. Yeah. I think it was actually in uh, an old hotel Hmm. they would broadcast out of. And, yeah, just reached uh, right into near north and um, kind of the other way, a little bit into Golden Valley. Um, But you had to live there to hear it. So they physically couldn't reach outside of their neighborhood. Kind of the
0: predecessor to uh, KMOJ.
1: Right. Exactly. Yep. And it kind of, there was a nice handoff. um, And KMOJ, uh, because it was an FM station, was able to broadcast more. Uh, KOXL was AM, and it only broadcast during the day. Mm-hmm. So when the sun went down, it would go off air. Right. Uh, so KMOJ was a, a nice step up.
0: We were talking um, a little earlier in the show about how the Rondo neighborhood in St. Paul was basically decimated by 94. Uh, but then so was part of Plymouth Avenue in North Minneapolis.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And again, that was a cultural hub um, dating back to Prohibition era. Mm-hmm. There were jazz clubs along Olson Memorial Highway. That was a really, really active music uh, spot. The Cozy Bar later on um, right. became very popular. The Blue Note, which was a jazz club.
0: Um, well, then you had one of the greatest uh, jazz bassists of all time, Oscar Peterson. Yes. Who's from uh, Minneapolis. Yep. Uh, Lester Young. Uh, yeah, the, the saxophone player used to live uh, just right outside of, of Minneapolis. But you had kind of, I know a little bit about that history, and that's why you kind of, your book kind of starts in 1958. Mm-hmm. But in the 30s and 40s and early 50s, you know, the Flame was a jazz club for a while. On right. the 15th and Nicollet. Right. And you had uh, all these after-hour jams going on where Duke Ellington would show mm-hmm. up or uh, Fat Swaller would show up at these these places in North Minneapolis, these after-hour right. jam places. Right. In fact, I have a theory. Fats Waller, I believe he died at 38, and he was a man of large appetites, and but a wonderful piano player, singer, and composer, very colorful character. Uh, don't quote me exactly on it, but I believe he passed away in February. Uh, the story was, at least from my reading... I think the Paul Metzah um, theory of uh, Fats Waller's death was he was playing. He had a gig at the Flame mm. for a week or two, and then he'd go to these after-hour jam sessions. And I swear to God, my feeling is he might have got pneumonia. Oh, wow. Because he was in late January or February, right before he passed away. Sure. He was uh, you know playing in Minneapolis.
1: Mm. Wow.
0: Cold weather. Anyway... Uh, we'll see, you know, that's my three. So, but let's talk about, as I said earlier, one of the things I loved about your book, uh, Andrea, is these, these great pictures. So, tell us about the clubs uh, on the north side. There was the Cozy, <laughs> yes. right? Yes, absolutely. Well, Willie Walkies play there all the time. Oh, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, that ended up uh, transitioning to another club called the Riverview. That was really popular. Um, that was a
0: great place. That was right on the river. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: I think it was near where they're proposing to build the giant amphitheater now, yeah. which is well, kind of which interesting. Would make, which
0: would be cool. Yeah,
1: it would be cool. Yeah, I mean, um, they
0: used to they had uh, they had several shows there. I think Morris Wilson, who is in your book, mm-hmm, great guy, mm-hmm. um, uh, did some shows there. Also, the the Radiators from New Orleans used to have their annual uh, show at the river. Okay, yeah, gorgeous cool. spot.
1: Um, the Blue Note that I mentioned, that was a really great place for um, different generations of people to come together. They mm-hmm. had this Monday night jam uh, where basically anyone could sit in. There's a picture of it where people, you can see just waiting in the wings right. with their horns, like, right. is it my turn yet? Um, and a lot of the younger musicians that were coming up in the 60s talked about that being just like a really pivotal place for them where they felt like they could get on stage and experiment for the first time. Um, and then... Another venue that I was really, really interested in that was actually in downtown um, that we mentioned earlier was King Solomon's Mine. Right. And I feel like that whole scene that was percolating on Olson Memorial at the Cozy uh, kind of migrated downtown for this right. brief period in the late 60s. And that and, was really in cool. The,
0: in the Fauché Tower. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I think uh, we were talking before we started taping that that uh, where the Keys Cafe is, that was actually yep. the space. Yeah. Um, and, but it was one of the first places... Uh, Two. correct me if i'm wrong there was a picture in your book uh of one of the integrated bands
1: yep yeah it was it was really um groundbreaking honestly the person that ran the club was named dean constantine who
0: just recently passed away yes
1: Yeah, and he was a dance instructor, and he just loved dancing, so he didn't really think about the necessarily the racial dynamic. Mm -hmm. He was more interested in just having really good music to move to, so he loved R&B, and he started booking these bands like the Amazers, who came out of the Rondo neighborhood, and Maurice McKinney's and the Blazers, who came out of North Minneapolis, and they ended up being the first black bands, or majority black bands, to play in downtown Minneapolis, Mm -hmm. which was previously off-limits to groups that you could maybe get away with having like one black member, but right. if it was more than that uh, they really had trouble getting gigs. So he ended up being a bit of a civil rights pioneer, um, kind less, of not knowing it. Bless his soul. And then he, it didn't really uh, click in for him until the city started targeting his club and trying to shut it down, what was going oh. on. And, and then he became really outspoken about the issue and talked to the Star Tribune and talked to all these papers and I was able to find a lot of material um, talking about just the struggle he faced.
0: Well, there was a, there's a great picture of the uh, they sit around probably uh, mimeographed uh, call to arms mm. for people that could sign and protest and sign yes. it city hall yes. and I think Willie Walker signed it yep. one of the Minnesota Vikings yep. Will Jones a guy I never met but he was really kind of kind of the forerunner way to people like you and Marty Keller oh yeah that, that write about uh, entertainment nightlife in the uh, in the Twin Cities Um, just one of the many things uh, for any of you out there in the viewing audience that will really enjoy in uh, Andrea Swenson's book. Got to be something here. We're going to take a little break and come back with Andrea. I've got uh, many more questions uh, about the whole thing. You're wonderfully inquisitive and and super smart (laughs) and I'm so glad you Did your detective work on this? It's a very important
1: piece of work. Thank you. Thanks so much.
0: Hope you're enjoying this conversation with Andrea Swenson on the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metza, inviting you back for one more segment after these messages.
2: This holiday season, think outside the everyday chocolate box. Make a splash with your friends, family, and clients with elegantly packaged artisan chocolates from Chocolat Celeste. Come taste the intoxicating flavor of the finest European chocolate handcrafted with love by founder and chocolatier Mary Leonard. Mary and her staff will help you understand the kind of chocolate that everyone wants and dreams about. Watch while the recipient opens the box. It's like a beautiful piece of holiday artwork. Then watch them taste the sweet and complex flavors. For Angelico, gingerbread, and Thai spice. Make your way to Chocolat Celeste. Open weekdays, 10 to 5.30, and Saturday, 10 to 5 p.m. Can't make it to Chocolat Celeste? Browse our website, ChocolatCeleste.com. View the holiday and corporate gift guides. Need help? Call Mary at 651-644-382. 3 Chocolat Celeste the way chocolate is meant to be
0: Join us each Monday morning at 7 a.m. for Social Entrepreneur, where things don't always go as planned, like when your
3: family walks in while you're recording.
0: I'm just getting rid of my family. I was about to have one of those BBC news moments. I was with just
1: them. going to say that was you know, just no, no, like I've, the BBC I've, news. I've already. just
0: waved them away. No way.
3: <laughs> so join us each Monday at 7 a.m. for Social Entrepreneur. Hear the stories of people just like you who are making a difference on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota.
4: This holiday season, shop local at Northern Sun. Since 1979, Northern Sun has been creating products for progressives so ordinary people can govern the future one shirt, one sticker, one button at a time. Redefine the art of gift-giving this holiday season. Give someone what they believe in. We don't think shirts, magnets, or stickers can save the world, but we do know that wearing them can make a difference. That's Northern Sun in Minneapolis on East Lake Street or online at northernsun.com.
3: Hello, this is Ellen Krug with Hidden Edges Radio on Sundays from 1 to 2 p.m. Join me this Sunday for an interview with Dave Pope of the TransUnited Front, the behind-the-scenes organization that helped propel several transgender humans into public office early last month. It's a story about a transgender group of folks saying enough and working to control their destiny. I, for one, am darn proud of that. Hidden Edges Radio,
0: challenging, passionate, perspective changing on AM 950. Welcome back to the Wall of Power Radio Hour, well, everybody. I'm your host, Paul Metzler, back with Andrea Swenson talking about her experience with Prince Rogers Nelson. There's no way we could end this interview without talking about your love of Prince and the wonderful time you got to spend with him in uh, in your combat boots on a Paisley Park. <laughs> right? Yes. Tell us... About first of all, when you started really uh, dig Prince, and then what an immense pleasure! Not only the book was, because really you're kind of telling his backstory. Yeah. It's never been told like this before, right? You know, John Bream has his book. There's other people that have their books. I think Alan Light has a book. Uh, this is a really different take on
1: yeah. the
0: Prince life story.
1: Yeah, I, I really. I wanted to bring out the humanity of it, you know. Um, I I really don't like, and I say this in the opening pages of the book. I, I really don't like the way a lot of people tend to talk about Prince, like he's like an alien, right. Or you know, some otherworldly creature that just got beamed down to right, join us right. here. He is a man who grew up in North Minneapolis in the 1970s, and I think really continuing to center that part of his life is is really important that. Um, you know, he was a human, and he had uh, faults, and he had strengths, and he was... And he
0: was, a, 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 you know, everybody talks about the Midwest work ethic. There's nobody that had right. it more than Prince Robert right. Nelson.
1: right. So, I mean, for me, my personal relationship with his music was, as a kid growing up in the 80s, it was just part of the air (laughs) that you breathe. Um, But then when I really started turning my focus towards Minnesota music, um, the last 15 years of my life has really been all about documenting Minnesota music. I had to really become a Prince expert because he's one of our most famous figureheads. Um, So I just started studying him like a a class in college or something. Um, and then it was just in the last few years that I started interacting with him directly. Um, first through, you know, just invitations to concerts, um, kind of getting the sense that he was reading what I was writing, which right. is a really interesting revelation. And well, then- I know he, he
0: pays attention <laughs> because there's that great story when John Bream uh, uh, dissed him in a review and then uh, Prince went on, I think, burnt uh-huh the review
1: on our Ar- arsenal Ar- hall.
0: hall and then shot Breen with a, a large water gun at some point yes. so he pays attention
1: <laughs> he, he definitely does yeah that was um just i really don't have any words to describe that how that relationship evolved and then getting to meet him uh, well, tell times. us the
0: story though but uh about how you got the phone call uh, from Bobby Z. Yeah. Uh, it was to,
1: the 30th anniversary of Purple Rain, which I know that you celebrated on yeah. the show too. And um, I had interviewed Bobby and the day that the interview went up, uh, I got an email from him and it just said, P wants me to see if you can come to Paisley Park tonight. Right. Um, and I thought maybe this is like a party or a show right. or something. But when I pulled into the parking lot, Bobby Z was the only car there and he was standing outside waiting for me. And I was like, are we in trouble? Right. Are right. we? I don't, what is this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so we went inside and we were absolutely um, entertained by Prince. He had a house band playing kind of beautiful jazz music right. while we hung out. He took us into the studio and played us a bunch of the new music that he was working on. You know, he had a real thing about not wanting to look back into the past and right. especially not wanting to celebrate anniversaries. Mm-hmm. So he was giving us a little bit of a hard time right. about that.
0: So let, let me ask you really quickly. So you go in. It's a he, He's kind of casual, but he's still being Prince, you mm-hmm. know. So what, what was he wearing?
1: He was wearing all black, this kind of slinky. You know, in the last few years, he was wearing. They look like very like upscale pajamas. Right, right, right. (laughs) So just very, uh, you know, comfortable but very classy uh, black clothes, and he had a beautiful giant necklace on. I remember looking at, and I also remember that when we shook hands, we stood perfectly eye eye, tie because he was wearing maybe like two or three inch platforms, Mm -hmm. and I'm about five six, so we were just right, right there. Um, Yeah, he was, you know. Again, bringing back to um, you know his humanity, he was so kind and warm and open and funny and I'd heard all these stories about journalists having just bizarre experiences trying to interact with him, and I just found him to be completely normal. Hmm. Um, you know, the situation was a little surreal because he created this, his own world, basically, right. out at, at Paisley exactly. Park. I do. You're sitting in a big purple plush overstuffed chair, yeah. and, you know, this house band is playing, like, a Bonnie Raitt song while you're talking to Prince. And, yeah. like, my mind is kind of trying to just piece it all together. But for the most little part... Little
0: girl from Moose Lake, right? <laughs>
1: how did this happen? Right. Um, but for the most part... He was just so, um, just so warm, is how I, I would describe it. And he was giving me kind of a hard time, just needling me a little bit. And the give um, and take, yeah. the cat and
0: mouse in the book, is great.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I'm just really glad that I could share all of that because, you know, as as we kept talking, I realized this was maybe my only chance to ask him some of these things I'd been wondering about. So we did talk a little bit about his upbringing and. Um, you know, what radio stations he listened to when he was a kid and what instruments he was playing when he was just starting out and um, kind of those formative years. Did you tape the interview? No.
0: He wouldn't let you do that?
1: No, um, and I knew that going in, so I didn't even try. Um, I did have a notebook. I only pulled it out when we were in the studio together, Um, but uh, the other times I just talked to him conversationally right. um there was one point where he stepped away for a second and i ran into the bathroom and scribbled a bunch of stuff into my notebook yeah, right. just like while well, it was right, still fresh right. um and then at the end of the night i sat down and wrote probably six thousand words of just wow. and then this happened and then this happened and this <laughs> mm.
0: what a phenomenal experience yeah you know when you were talking about prince just being really at the end of the day kind of uh, another ordinary minnesotan yeah and i say ordinary in terms of uh he was extraordinary. We all, right. we all know that. Everybody over the world knows that. But really, um, just a human being like the rest mm-hmm. of us, I remember when he passed uh, Paul Westerberg from the replacements. They asked him uh, about any interactions with Prince because the replacements did some recording at Paisley mm-hmm. Park. And he said, yeah, we'd be uh, recording and, and Prince would show up in his pajamas and go put some popcorn in the microwave. I love that. Yeah, I just love that. Safe, you know, you get you get the replacements and you get Prince's pajamas with microwave popcorn. I go, that's Minnesota to me.
1: Michael Bland told me a story about that, too. Being, you know, he was in the NPG in the mm-hmm. 90s and uh, he really wanted to meet Paul Westerberg. And he went into the studio uninvited <laughs> wearing uh, what he described as like a super futuristic samurai outfit because right, right. they were shooting some kind of crazy music video. And he um, basically snuck into the studio while Paul's uh, producer, whoever, had stepped out. And he was like, hey, man, I, I really wanted to meet you. And Paul's like, do you want to play on my record? <laughs> and he ended up drumming on two of the tracks. <laughs>
0: wow, and now he's playing with Soul Saddle.
1: Yeah. Well, that's funny. the other
0: interesting thing <laughs> about the, um, about Minneapolis. So you've got Michael Bland with Westerberg. I've been honored to be playing with Willie Walker yeah. for seven years. And But there's just this really wonderful community of human beings. And I think one of the things I I loved about how how the book was ending up, about how Prince's version, when he really came on the scene Mm -hmm. in the early 80s, it was about all colors, all types of sexuality, all different kinds of people, Mm -hmm. um, and how he was really, he had a pretty... uh, utopian vision of how the world should work
1: black white puerto rican everybody a freaking that's right exactly
0: <laughs> thanks for listening to the wall of power radio hour this show was produced by paul metza engineered by paul sowey we'd like to thank our guest andrea swenson get her book Got to be something here at finer bookstores everywhere. You can also see Wall and Power TV every Saturday night at 8 p.m. Replayed at 1130 on MCN6.org if you got Comcast on Channel 6. Hope you're enjoying the holidays. And like my dad used to tell me, remember to be kind and make someone happy.